I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Practicing the Way, Preaching the Gospel. If I asked everyone listening to this to define the gospel, my guess is that I'd get a lot of different answers. Preaching the gospel is one of the primary roles of discipleship to Jesus, and yet, by and large, our paradigm for the gospel is muddied or corrupted by centuries of bad practice. So how can we relearn and rediscover something fundamental to following Jesus? Um, In the winter of 2007, I drove up to Seattle to see, live and in concert, none other than once infamous pop culture boogeyman Marilyn Manson. Uh, After the 90s, Manson more or less vanished into irrelevance and poor record sales before recently losing his career to a long list of sex scandal accusations. But in the 90s, Manson terrified conservative parents with his novel idea of repackaging Alice Cooper and David Bowie by way of Nine Inch Nails. And as a goth, rebellious teenager, I loved it. But when I was 15, in my hyper-conservative culture of Southern Baptist Southeast Georgia, no one was going to take me to see a Marilyn Manson concert. So when I was 24 and out on my own and he was down the street, I figured now's my chance. It was a weird thing being a 24-year-old Christian in line with angsty goth teenagers waiting to see Marilyn Manson, but I sort of silently observed them and I thought to myself, ah, yes, I was once like you, you know? And they were all trying to outdo one another with rebellious edginess. And throughout the whole experience, one thing really, really struck me as particularly evil. And it wasn't the black lipstick kids with pentagram necklaces, and nor was it Manson's swear words or anti-evangelical theatrics. It was the quote-unquote Christian protesters lined up outside. To hear them tell it, they were there to save souls. Repent of your blasphemy or burn in hell was the catchy chorus line they kept repeating. And they shouted this at the long line of hot topic shoppers. Confess your sexual sin or die. Does that sound like good news? Scary news, maybe. Because when the world is such a scary, sinful place, you fight fear with more fear. And the teenagers shouted back and made little devil horns at them. And the whole thing was so embarrassing that I was like, look, everyone just calm down and wait in line for Marilyn Manson in a polite and orderly fashion. That night in 2007, this is what passed for the gospel, the good news about Jesus and all that comes with it. And it did not sound so good. And it gets worse. For decades, America has often misrepresented the gospel with picket signs and fiery hell rhetoric, but the gospel has been getting a bad rap for a very long time. Colonialism, the Crusades, Manifest Destiny, for centuries, Satan himself has corrupted Jesus' command to preach the gospel by tarnishing it with violence and domination and imperialism. It's not the good news. It's not even Christian. And that is, I think, one of the two reasons that talk of sharing the gospel makes most people, Christian or otherwise, squirm with apprehension and discomfort. The second reason is that in our time and place, the idea of any attempt to convince a non-Christian to become a Christian, whether done angrily or with tact and humility and acumen, has become culturally taboo. The forward-thinking, fake progressive pretense is, of course, you find your own truth. 
You do you, follow your heart, all are welcome, coexist. Unless it violates the comrade-approved life manual of fake-woke progressivism, in which case we will silence, cancel, and destroy you, your livelihood, your entire life. You do you, unless you doing you means voting, speaking, behaving, believing, in any way deemed inappropriate by the herd mentality. All religions are welcome, except the ones that we deem backward, ignorant, or bigoted. These must be destroyed. Coexist if you submit. If not, die. All in all, it's not a glamorous season for what we call sharing the gospel. Do you want to be a bigoted colonist or an angry, hell-mongering sandwich board nut? And out of this bad reputation grew the ridiculous idea of a non-gospel Christianity. I'm sure you've heard of it. The idea that just being nice will somehow impart the good news that Jesus of Nazareth is king of the universe. We pick on it all the time here at Van City, the quote often attributed to St. Francis, Francis, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words that St. Francis never actually said and likely makes him spin in his grave. This conceit that anyone will ever actually think to themselves, man, my neighbor sure is friendly. You know what? I think there is a God and that he has revealed himself to us in a first century rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth, and now we can be reconciled to God through Jesus. You can see where I'm getting at with this. While it's true that the gospel is more than just words, it is not less than that. Van City Church has never claimed to belong to the evangelical tradition, which, as far as we can tell, has been violently drained of any and all positive connotations by the American civil religion that masquerades as Christianity while being anything but. But, believe it or not, before the word evangelical was a loaded political term that amounted to little beyond voting Republican and a few basic conservative social ideologies, the evangelical tradition was famous for evangelism. Hence the name. To evangelize, to oversimplify, is to share one's belief, one's faith, in the hopes that it will spread. But then a devolution took place. Somehow amongst all its other necrosis and decay, evangelicalism reduced sharing the story of Jesus to a fast food transaction. Raise your hand, say a prayer, repeat after me, presto, you get to go to heaven when you die. Now, if that recipe was part of your story, don't feel guilty or judged. That was part of my story, too. And thank God that he is willing to work powerfully, even in bad theology. But it's incredible that the gospel has been famously misrepresented as this prayer transaction, despite the fact that no such incantation appears anywhere in the Bible, nor has the end goal of discipleship ever been going to heaven when you die. And because the gospel was so cheapened, so misrepresented, so falsified, evangelicalism created a monstrous mob paradox in which one can claim to be a Christian without ever actually becoming a disciple of Jesus. And words like Christian or evangelism and the phrase sharing the gospel went from sacred terminology of the ancient Jesus movement to emotionally loaded, squirm-inducing cringe buttons. And our aversion to evangelism misrepresented isn't wrong. In fact, Jesus himself had a few choice words about it. When confronting a religious establishment that created hypocrites rather than disciples, Jesus said, Woe to you! 
teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I think his accusation stands today as well. And yet, Jesus' response to this problem of the gospel misrepresented was not, you know what, you do you, coexist, just be kind. In fact, all four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament end this way. Here's Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Or here's Mark. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Or listen to Luke's two-volume gospel. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then we have John's version. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, I am sending you. The marching orders of Jesus to all disciples then and now was the same according to everyone who would go on to tell the story. Now you go and you spread the message of Jesus. Be with Jesus become like Jesus, and then what? Do what Jesus did. And Jesus preached the gospel. Because now, just as it was then, the world is lost. That was the word that Jesus used to describe people far from God. He called them lost. A word that likely provokes the ire of the you-do-you progressivism. But in Jesus' compassionate worldview, it was actually a dignifying term. To be lost does not imply evil or stupidity. Jesus did not call all non-disciples totally depraved fools. In fact, he warned against doing that. They're not debauched idiots and heathens. They are lost. And we should get that because we were lost. And Jesus claimed that he had come to, and I quote, seek and save the lost. He's going to look for them find them, and rescue them, not condemn them, shame them, and threaten each and every one of them with damnation and hell, but seek and save the lost. And for hundreds of years, all over the world, the way that Jesus seeks and saves is, get this, through you and I preaching the gospel. Think about it. You guys here in this room, you who follow Jesus, you're here because someone shared the gospel with you, your parents, or a friend, a family member, a pastor, or lots of different people over an extended period of time. The only way that you know the truth of Jesus is because someone out there, imperfect though they were, was obedient enough to Jesus to share the gospel with you. And we are wired by God to share good news. Think about it. My friends who love novels as much as I do, we always tell each other about whatever novel we're reading at the time. Me and Levi do this every single Sunday. I read this novel this week. What would you read this week? And then we trade them back and forth. Music-loving people, they love to tell you about their new favorite record or if they're under the age of 35, their new favorite single and that's it. TV people constantly share whatever miniseries they're enjoying. When we find something good, we want to share it with someone else. All of us, stories, art, food, moments, we want to bring other people into our good news, which is why Jesus said, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus is our example. We are to do likewise, and we do this within our own time and place. That is our responsibility. The Bolivian scholar Mortimer Arias argued every generation has to be evangelized. 
That is, confronted with the good news of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. And every generation of Christians has the unique and non-transferable responsibility of sharing the good news with its own generation. I think that he's onto something with this. You and I have the unique and non-transferable responsibility of sharing the good news with our own generation, our time and place, our own culture, and our own spheres of influence, our family, friends, coworkers, and neighbors. And I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a statistician, but I have a sense that despite an undeniable hostility to the gospel that seems to hang in the air at all times, there also seems to be something like an opening right now. The chaos and suffering of life in the post-2020 world seems to reveal more every day the intellectual hypocrisy and spiritual bankruptcy of the secular progressivism that so many assumed would save them. Political idolatry, moral scapegoating, being angry all the time, being scared all the time. It is a powerful drug, and it's a great way to hide from the complexities of reality in a broken world, but for how long? Slowly, there will be those who pull their wearied heads up out of their news cycles and Instagram feeds, blinking sand from their eyes, and ask, is this really all there is? Or they'll take a step back and examine the hopeless knotted tangles of their hodgepodge spirituality, what seemed at one, one time a, an appealing escape from the dogmas of social religions, and they'll realize that while great for hashtags and virtue signaling, their patchwork faith is inconsistent and untenable, and it actually sets no one free. And maybe then they'll ask, is there some other story? Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Today, we begin learning a new practice, sharing the gospel. Now, even with that elaborate introduction, I realize that guards are up and apprehension is high. So, my humble request is this. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Relax. We're going to do a lot of work trying to undo misconceptions about the gospel. No one is going to hand you a bunch of tracts and ask you to go do door-to-door -door evangelism, okay? Let's embark on this thing together with a ton of patience for each other and for ourselves and just see what Jesus teaches us, okay? Is all right? Lexi, it's okay with you. Everybody else is still on the fence, but you and I will lead them into this. Thank you very much. Now, before we really get into it, here's a bit of recommended reading for the series if you want to go deeper. The first is uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. Excellent, readable little book about hospitality and what it means to share the gospel. Um, How to Reach the West Again by Tim Keller, which is only 50 pages long. You can read it in one or two sittings, and it's actually a free ebook online if you want to grab that. Eternity is Now in Session by John Ortberg and Simply Good News by N.T. Wright. All great resources for sharing the gospel. They all fueled this series, so check those out if you want. If you want to dig deeper into what I'm talking about tonight, specifically, check out Scott McKnight's The King Jesus Gospel, a great little readable book that's all about misconceptions about the gospel. Now, with that said, ask yourself this question. What is the gospel exactly? My guess is that if I ask 10 different people in this room right now, I might get 10 slightly different answers. So how do we begin to consolidate our collective paradigm for the gospel? 
The answer, of course, is with Jesus. So let's look at Mark chapter 1. Before we read the text proper, start with this. At the top of the page, before the first verse, what does it say? Anyone? That's right, the gospel of Mark. In Greek, euangelion kata Marcos. It's the gospel of, or according to, as some of you said, Mark. All the New Testament biographies of Jesus open with this formula, the gospel according to Matthew or according to Luke or John, which means that everything from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the closing line of that book is the gospel. The gospels are the gospel. This may not seem like a profound thing to say, but think about it this way. Those of us who grew up in the American church were likely taught what Dr. Gary Brashears calls the John 3.16 gospel, which goes something like this. You are a sinner on your way to hell, but Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. The weird thing is that if you read all four gospels, you will not find anything like that in them. In fact, in the opening chapter of Mark's gospel, the author summarizes Jesus' gospel message, and it sounds radically different from the gospel with which many of us were raised. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news or gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news or gospel. So let's dissect this a bit. First, talk about that phrase, the good news. In Greek, it's the word euangelion. It's where we get the English word evangelism or evangelical. In the first century, euangelion was neither religious nor spiritual. It was a political word. To evangelize or to preach the good news was to proclaim throughout the Roman Empire the declaration of a new king or of his victory in war over his opponents. Here's an example from history. Bear with me for like 60 seconds. In 44 BC, so I'm told, a few decades before Jesus, Julius Caesar was assassinated, which is kind of a big thing, the assassination of an emperor. So civil war breaks out all across the Roman Empire. There was Brutus and Cassius, the guys who killed Caesar. And then there was Caesar's buddy, Mark Antony, and his nephew, Octavian. Long story short, Caesar's pals defeated Brutus and Cassius, but then they turned on each other. The story goes that after 13 years of violence and unrest, there came this big climactic battle on the Grecian coast. Octavian won the war. Mark Antony and Cleopatra killed themselves rather than go on in defeat. Octavian was renamed Augustus and was declared to be Duus Filius, or the Son of God. And he was proclaimed, and I quote, Lord and Savior of the world. One ancient inscription discovered by archaeologists in western Turkey reads, The birthday of the God, Caesar Augustus, was the beginning for the world of the gospel, euangelion, that has come to men through him. Augustus then sent preachers and evangelists throughout the empire to spread the euangelion. Good news. Octavian has been defeated as well as, or oh, sorry, good news, Octavian has defeated his enemies. He is now the son of God himself come to save us and usher in an everlasting kingdom of justice and peace. When it took a few years for the dust to settle, for Augustus to make it back home, for order to be restored to the empire, and during that time, as the gospel went out, those who heard the good news had a decision to make. Will you receive the gospel or not? 
All that to say, before gospel was a religious word or a church cliche, it was a political word. It was a royal announcement of a new and victorious king and of a new and coming kingdom, which is why Mark renders the telling thusly, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. So don't let antiquity or familiarity drain the line of its implications. The time has come. It's a loaded phrase reaching back thousands of years into prophecies and promises of this moment. It's here. Everything God said, everything God promised, the time has come near. And kingdom is the word basile in Greek, sort of tricky to translate because it's an active word, less like a noun and more like a verb, which is why other scholars translate that same word, the reign of God, active, now, it's happening right now. Now, I do realize that kingdom of God is still an ambiguous term for a lot of us, but think of it this way. You might define the kingdom of God as the range of God's effective will, or put another way, wherever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, there you find the kingdom of God. It could be a moment or a place, an actual location. It could be a household, a family, a culture, a relationship. It could be a church or a society or a culture or a movement. All that, whenever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that is the kingdom of God. And the last bit in the line, has come near, in Greek is in geizo, which can be translated has arrived or is now available. I'm telling you all of this to clear away all the churchy Christianese from a line well-known to many of us and hopefully give us a chance to read it with new eyes. So here's my paraphrase, or it's not actually a paraphrase because it's much longer. Here's my elaboration on that same line. It's finally happening. Everything God promised since Genesis is coming to fruition in Jesus. Goodness and justice and mercy, God's will on earth as it is in heaven, is now available to everyone in Jesus. If they turn around, abandon their old way of life, and follow the new king into the new kingdom. And this is not Josh's kooky interpretation. Here's the same idea from a few different scholars. Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary writes, If we ask what message Jesus brought, the short answer is simply this. He brought the good news that God's promised rule of deliverance had arrived. John Ortberg, Jesus' good news, his gospel is simply this. The kingdom of God has now, through Jesus, become available for ordinary human beings to live in. One more. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has come near through Jesus and through his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement. The powers of Satan, sin, and death no longer have the last word. Again, if your experience of church and Christian culture has been anything like mine, none of this sounds like the definition of gospel that I was handed at an early age. And we'll get into different and mistaken representations of the gospel in a couple of weeks. For for tonight, here's what I want to impress on you guys. The core teaching of Jesus of Nazareth was the kingdom of God. He talked about it more than any other thing. The word kingdom shows up 122 times in the Gospels, 90 of which come from Jesus, which is weird because in my very churchy upbringing, I don't remember hearing about the kingdom at all. I heard about sin and I heard about heaven, but I did not hear about the kingdom. So to end tonight, before we dig deeper into what the gospel is and isn't and what it actually means to preach the gospel, I want to give you a very brief theology of the kingdom that we'll use going forward in this series. You guys okay? You got just a few more minutes in you? 
great, thank you. He's like, geez, he's back for one night and already with the long teachings and the biblical theologies, he'll be okay. See, the concept of kingdom goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the Bible story, human beings, if you know the story, they're created to, the language is, rule with God, to have dominion over the earth. It's the language of royalty, of kings and queens, made to collaborate with God and share in His good reign. But if you know the story, humanity doesn't want to share dominion. They want their own dominion, and the whole project goes off the rails. And rather than just wipe the slate clean by destroying the failed human project, God loves and seeks and pursues humanity, working with and in their brokenness to restore the kingdom he wanted to establish. So God calls a guy called Abram to become the father of new people. You know the song. Through whom God will rescue all people. And God intended to be their king. But again, Israel doesn't want God to be king. They want to be king, and it's sort of failure on loop for a while. And as you read about Israel blowing it for hundreds of pages across the Old Testament, a horrible realization sets in. Israel was supposed to be God's agent of salvation in the world, but Israel needs saving. So the story of the Bible, and I would argue the story pressing in on us from all sides every day, is that on our own, we can't fix the world ourselves, not with politics or systems or slogans or protests or hashtags. We can do some good stuff for sure, and we can certainly do some bad stuff, but we simply cannot resolve the world's brokenness because we are broken. People can't save people when the people themselves need saving. And the Old Testament, if you know the story, concludes unresolved. At the end of it, Israel's waiting to be saved from her sins. There's no sign of the Messiah, no sign of the promised king. If anyone is going to fix this, it's going to have to be God himself. The human project, its kingship and its kingdoms, had fundamentally and conclusively failed. And first century Jews were waiting for something to change. They were crying out to God for this, for the kingdom of God that had been promised all the way back in the beginning. He promised it would come through an anointed king, the Messiah. But as the Old Testament ends, it ends with a question, where is he? And then, you know, there's Babylon in the story, there's exile, there's Rome, and there's suffering and oppression, and there's waiting and waiting and waiting for the king and the kingdom. And then, in an obscure nowhere corner of the empire comes a stonemason turned rabbi, and suddenly he says, the time has come, the kingdom has come near. Not, the time will come, and not, The kingdom will come near. No, the time is now, it's here. And imagine Jesus' audience then being just as confused by that language as we are today. It's here. Israel was still under Roman oppression. There had been no revolt, no uprising. They had not reclaimed their ancestral land from the pagan enemy. Everything was still broken, just like now. Violence and oppression, racism, injustice, slavery, political unrest run rampant all over the world then and now. How could it have possibly been true then that the kingdom of God had arrived and how can it possibly be true now? And here's where we conclude our theology of the kingdom with a few answers to this pressing question. Stay with me. Don't tune out. This is what you need to understand. First, for your note takers, the kingdom is here, but it's also coming. The language we often use around here is it's now and it's not yet. In theology, we call this inaugurated eschatology. Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom of God, it's here, he defeated the powers of darkness, but the kingdom has not come in full. 
D-Day has been fought and won, but we are still waiting on V-Day, when Jesus will put an end to all injustice, suffering, evil, and sin forever. Secondly, the kingdom of God is completely unlike any and all kingdoms of the world. We unpacked this in detail last fall with our series, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Not, if you want to go back and listen on the podcast. Theologians call it the upside-down kingdom, where the greatest among us are the least, where the first shall be last, where the king of the entire universe was not born in a palace amongst royalty, but to poor teenagers in a cave surrounded by livestock and flies and manure. God has truly come into and amongst the broken world. He is not far off or unknowable or out of touch, but he is present to and familiar with the pain of life in the world. The king actually died to rescue his enemies. The king is not an angry protester or a dominating colonist. He's a rescuer. He rescues his enemies. What king does that? What kingdom works this way? In what kingdom is it decreed that the powerful should serve the weak, where the wealthy should divest their resources to the poor, where the lowly and unwanted are set in families, where the irredeemable are redeemed, where the sick are healed, where the weapons forged for war are beaten into farm tools to grow vegetables? This is why I think that we so often miss the reality that the kingdom is here because it is not what we expected it to be. And this brings me to my final point. The kingdom cannot grow by force, but by self-sacrificial servant love. You cannot legislate the kingdom of God. It cannot be mandated. You can make rules to attempt to force people to act like they belong to the kingdom, but it's not real. The kingdom is an outgrowth and overflow of the heart, whereby those who have been rescued and restored and redeemed are so imbued with the love of God and gratitude for His goodness that they live differently because they are different. And God makes His home in us by His Spirit to empower us for life in the kingdom, to do what we could not do otherwise. Legislation can't do that. Coercive force cannot do that. It lacks the power of God to change the heart. And in the kingdom, anyone is welcome. Everyone is invited. Repent and believe the euangelion, the gospel. But repent and believe does not mean stop with the sin, say a magical prayer, and believe in your mind intellectually that Jesus is God. Repent is a word that means turn around, or it's just a new way of life. Adopt an entirely new worldview. Allow God to reorient everything you think you know about who God is, who you are, and what it means to be a human being. Trust in God's vision, God's truth, in and through His Son, Jesus, who can do what no human or system can do, heal you, rescue you, set you free, and release you into true life and meaning and purpose for you and for the entire human family. And that means that you have to give up your own dominion, your own bid for your own kingdom and surrendering to God's better vision for human flourishing. If you want to know which is better, your version, my version, or God's version, then see the world. Violence, 
poverty, war, oppression, racism, sexism, police brutality, civil unrest, civil war, paranoia, conspiracy obsession, environmental disaster, mental health crises, rampant addiction, the breakdown of the family, confusion and despair over basic human biology and gender, loneliness, suicide, digital idolatry. And everyone thinks, oh, it's just because the wrong people are in charge. If we could get our kings and our ideological causes in power, then we would fix this. Well, they've been saying that all over the world for thousands of years. And guess what? No dice. Everyone has had a turn on the throne. And guess what? It never works. It's not a novel idea. All the great philosophers agree that something is fundamentally wrong with humanity. But Jesus' teaching was radical then and now because he argued that the problem is in us. I read recently about a Portland professor who, in the wake of the 2016 election, he remembered reading a big headline in, I think it was the Willamette Weekly, that read, we will not allow hate into our city. And this professor talked about the way that he was baffled by this declaration, we won't allow hate into our city, as if it's not already there. But this is the lie that reigns supreme in today's fractured political hysteria and outrage culture. Whatever's wrong, it's out there. It's someone or something else. We will resist because us, we are awesome. It's them that's the problem. Both sides think this. All sides think this. But the Bible story argues that it's us, all of us. And no amount of headlines or promises to keep hate out of our city will ultimately resolve the fact that hate is in us. William Golding, I think, was right when he argued in his fantastic novel, Lord of the Flies, give us a minute and humans will descend into primal savagery and hatred and violence and chaos. It's what's inside. We're broken and we want to be in charge. So you get broken kingdoms ruled by broken people. Unless we allow ourselves to be saved and relinquish our death grip on the rule and reign we so badly want to instill over our own lives and over the world. We don't just need laws and nonprofits and hashtags. We need to be healed at a soul level. It's us that's the problem. Those of us who have wreaked havoc on our own lives and know full well that everything's a mess because of us, and those of us who, by all accounts, seem to have done pretty well and everything seems put together, we all need the same saving. As Ortberg writes, salvation isn't primarily about going to a good place, but becoming good people, as defined by becoming people of love, willing the good of others at all times, in all situations, with compassion, wisdom, courage, and resolute fidelity. We need to be saved, not just from what will happen to us, but what could happen in us, from who we could become. Sin isn't just doing wrong things, but becoming the wrong person. This is why you have to understand that repentance or being saved isn't about an intellectual belief or a magic prayer. It is about discipleship, the all-encompassing lifelong process of surrendering every part of your life, every part of yourself over to the kingship of Jesus so that everything you do, everything you say and think and plan and hope is being slowly, more and more over time, formed into the image of Jesus, into the love of Jesus by the empowering of the Spirit of God in us. N.T. Wright 
says it well. Here's a long quote for you. The good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. The ancient hopes have indeed been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. The ancient sickness that had crippled the whole world and humans with it has been cured at last so that new life can rise up in its place. Life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of a new power, the power of love. The good news was and is that all this has happened in and through Jesus, that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all creation, and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. This is the Christian gospel. Do not allow yourself to be fobbed off with anything less. That is good news. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to lead us in the truth of the gospel so that we can do likewise for others. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.